From Washington, this is the HPS Macrocast with Hamilton Place Strategies and Markets Policy Partners. Good morning. It's Tuesday, March 3rd, 2020, and you're listening to a special coronavirus update edition of the HPS Macrocast. I'm John Fagan, a principal at Markets Policy Partners, in for Tony Fratto today. And I'm here in the studio with Dr. Christopher Moores, a virologist and professor at the Milken Institute School of Public Health at George Washington, at the George Washington University. Uh, Chris uh, has been, he's been kind enough to join us uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he's He's back here for this update uh, just by way of brief background. Dr. Morris has been a professor at the University of Florida and Louisiana State University before his current position at the George Washington University. He has also worked in the uh, Emerging Infectious Department of the U.S. Naval Research Lab, Unit Number 6 in Peru. You were the director thereof and uh, and a variety of other other positions. Dr. Morris, Chris, uh, I guess let, let's start with what we have found out over the last couple of weeks clearly is this, uh, the coronavirus is not going to be contained to China. We've seen it spread to a variety of other countries, chiefly Japan, South Korea, Iran, Italy. Is there anything we've found during these last couple of weeks and the widening outbreak, is there anything new that we've learned about this virus uh, that we can, uh, th- that has refined our understanding? Yeah. Hey, John, thanks for having me on uh, the podcast. It's uh, nice to be here again. Uh, so last time we talked, we were really still looking just at the outbreak zone there in China. And uh, we were we were hoping we were getting a good beat on the on the data uh, and, the, and the actuals there. Uh, but we really wanted to see what was going to happen if it got out with those same patterns hold up and such. And so now we've got some significant transmission going on in, in South Korea, Iran, Italy, and it's and other countries look like they're getting ready to follow suit. And you know we're looking at those at, to those countries now to kind of give us some some level of validation perhaps on on the data we we already have seen come out of China, uh, and if not, then to maybe give us another version of reality we need to be prepared for. So um, you know people in my field we follow we follow every bit of data crumb that gets left out for us, and so we we've certainly been looking at um, you know uh, case rates and and death rates as they've been reported, and. Uh, so far, we've we've been able to say in in a number of cases that uh, these countries seem to be experiencing still a, a significant uh, case fatality rate, um, and this might be something that we still need to be prepared for in terms of a you know substantial burden of disease uh, globally as this continues to roll on. And uh, and you mentioned the the transmission rates. Obviously, we talked in your previous uh, edition of, of uh, uh, our discussion about the the difficulty of uh, the difficulty of containment when you have potentially a lengthy asymptomatic uh, gestation period of the mm-hmm. virus when the patient is actually contagious. Is that something that is comp- is that the main complicating aspect of controlling this, or is it something else? No, that's that's spot on. So the the issue of of whether or not this is containable, 
uh, really does have to do about with our ability to identify cases um, before transmission events happen. And so if if people that aren't showing symptoms yet are able to, to transmit this to others, that makes containment really very difficult. And we have to we have to cast a wider diagnostic net to try and catch all of those people that might be involved in transmission chains long before they show up with symptoms. And so when we look at the, obviously looking at the initial outbreak data in China, there were there were issues potentially about the Chinese data and some questions about that. Can you roughly say that the that the data that you're seeing from Japan, Italy, uh, and South Korea roughly matches what we saw in China, or is it uh, are there some key differences? Well, I think the you know the right now the bellwether I'm looking at is is South Korea. So they have they have rolled out a substantial public health response. Uh, and with with lofty goals in, in terms of diagnosing hundreds of thousands of uh, you know of people there in that country, and so that is that's some very strong data looking at uh, transmission rates and and uh, morbidity and mortality rates there. That that is sort of giving us a different picture. Maybe it's going to be a little bit lower case fatality rate than the than the two percent we've we've seen in many other countries. Um, and I think we certainly need to hold out hope that that will be closer to the truth. Um, with a with a broad diagnostic net like they're doing, we're we're able to see the milder cases, right? So we're not just waiting for people to show up to the hospital saying like I really feel sick and maybe it's COVID nineteen. Uh, they're getting you know in South Korea they they've got drive through diagnostics. You don't even get out of your car. They do a test on you. You know even if you feel them just a little like maybe I was exposed. You know I went to dinner last night. Someone was sneezing. They can go and get tested. Uh, anytime they want, so so that is really a you know a dramatic approach, you know in a different way than the dramatic approach we saw in China, which was to really isolate people, trying to break transmission chains. In South Korea, they were really looking at you know okay look we we don't have that sort of you know armamentarium at our disposal in public health, but we can at least understand who's infected by doing this mass diagnostic push. And how accurate are the diagnostics? We've heard and read stories that the testing is a little bit body potentially is that if you have the right kit if you have the right uh, if you have the right procedures is it diagnostically accurate yeah so the the tests being run right now are, are generally direct viral detections uh, off the genomes and so that those are generally pretty good um, very, they can be very sensitive uh, and very specific the the issue we've seen in some cases, in particular the one the test that was being deployed here by the CDC in the U.S., was that uh, it was made a little bit more complicated by by a, a series of three different validation uh, um, internal assays that had to happen to for that for that test to be you know reported as valid and and you know positive or negative, and so that really did hold back along with the case definition the use of that test in a uh, in a broad diagnostic way. Um, at this point. You know the FDA has approved dozens, at the, as, my, as far as my understanding at this point, of uh, emergency use authorized uh, diagnostic tests. The CDC has streamlined their diagnostic test, and so you know we are all kind of holding our breath and hoping that you know in the next you know week or two tops we have uh, essentially an unlimited access to to diagnostics, much like we're seeing in South Korea. Um, that still has to come to fruition, but I think that's a, a very much a needed ingredient in terms of the U.S. response to uh, to this transmission now that we're seeing pop up all over the country. Shifting back to China for a moment, 
if we're looking for and, and trying to find some good news in this uh, in, in the latest news cycle here from the from the outbreak, China, I suppose, would be the first place to look. They have downgraded the emergency, the public health emergency levels in a variety of different provinces. There are reports of people getting back to work, factories reopening, stores reopening. Dramatic declines in in new cases, you know, even in the epicenter of of the outbreak, is that something that uh, is it? Do you believe it's accurate? And uh, and if it and if it is, is this something that we can take some comfort in, some hope uh, in? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really complicated. I mean, the the Chinese response is is uh, unique. It's unlike anything we we've, we've seen before, and uh, their application of uh, very stringent tactics and high tech approaches um, have undoubtedly caused a, a significant decrease in transmission uh, within the country. We don't necessarily think that we're getting the, the full story on, on the data. We don't necessarily think that they've been um, providing us a, a full accounting of, of testing efforts. And again, so they might be um, they might be, um, you know, preferentially providing diagnostic testing to, you know, the very sick or something. It's 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 not entirely clear. But what I think is clear is that, um, you know, getting back to work is is critical. I mean, you know, you can't keep the world's second largest economy shut down, and uh, and you know, indefinitely because there are still, you know, we're reporting at this point, uh, you know, eighty thousand cases or so in mainland China. There's still you know, many, many hundreds and hundreds of millions of people there in China that are still susceptible, even if that number is inaccurate. And so transmission will have to, con- you know, will, will likely continue for, for a long time to come. And we have to learn how we're going to deal with that. Like, how are we going to not just, you know, hunker down, stay home uh, until this is all over? Because uh, as we self-quarantine and try and avoid contact with each other, that slows down the outbreak, but it doesn't necessarily drive it to extinction. And so the second we kind of pop back out of our homes and go back to work, uh, we will still find virus there um, and, and transmission will ensue. I think what we need to do is, you know, really strategize at this point, how do we keep the wheels, you know, and the engines of the economy running? Um, without, you know, without turning our backs on the fact that this is still a nasty virus and we do have to take care of people that are um, at risk of severe disease. Well, let's take a quick break there and we'll be right back and look specifically at uh, issues in the U.S. You're listening to the HPS Macrocast Coronavirus Update. Markets Policy Partners provide sophisticated financial market analysis that is independent, accessible, and actionable for a broad audience. Learn more at marketspolicy.com. And we're back with the HPS Macrocast Special Coronavirus Update Edition. I'm John Fagan, Principal at Markets Policy Partners here in the studio in Washington, D.C., with Dr. Christopher Moores, a noted virologist and professor at the Milken Institute School of Public Health at the George Washington University. Just before the break, Chris, you said that the, the public health response to the coronavirus needs to be balanced with the ability to get back to economic activity and regular daily life to the greatest extent possible. What does that suggest in terms of uh, public health and uh, policymaker response? How do they strike that optimal balance? 
Yeah, well, I think you know we certainly have to admit to ourselves that we're not going to be able to uh, lock down you know Western populations like like the, you know, they've been able to in China. And so, you know, what is the best way to to keep us uh, you know ahead of the outbreak and mitigating its you know its negative consequences to the vulnerable um, while while still you know going to school and going to work. And and so the pol- uh, from the policy side that you know we really need to be thinking about that in terms of like how do we you know what are the things we need to say and put out there and enable to allow people to you know take the time they need if they're taking care of you know sick loved ones to minimize the exposure to uh, to vulnerable populations um, and so this can be about you know, in some of the you know some of the public spaces that you know government officials have certainly mentioned things like telework uh, there's been talk about closing schools and that usually has to also involve like well that doesn't mean that, you know the kids go home and just run around the neighborhood and still expose everybody it's you know they're going to have to do online uh, coursework and such to um, you know to keep you know keep them sort of like separated so we we damp down um, uh, tamp down the uh, the transmission a bit um, but you know from a policy perspective really those those things need to be thought out in in the fullness of what it means to ask people to to stay further away from each other ask them maybe to take breaks from work ask them to you know have their kids home from school each one of those things can if not fully you know put in the context of all the other pieces of the of how people move around inside of our economy um, can kind of body check you know each other and say oh the kids are staying home the schools are closed well what's that mean for for people that can't telework you know and so what's that mean for the whole service industry um, you know these things have to be you know like I think baked from a you know top down sort of way and 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 that ha- that can't be something really that's done as is really happening right now where individual you know organizations companies and schools are, are trying to come up with you know a, a detached response I mean yes everyone has to have their plan but those plans need to be at, at some point coalesced around a, a local a state and a national you know policy set that's supportive and so on an individual basis just for ourselves as as citizens and mm-hmm. economic actors within the US how should we be conducting ourselves at the moment to minimize the risks to ourselves and our loved ones and the people around us yeah so you know this is all certainly you know based on on the, the current set of data we're looking at where um, it, it does appear that you know the very young are less affected Okay, uh, probably still able to transmit, and this is this is one of the reasons why school closing is considered. But um, the data that's come out of China so far, uh, and we'll keep reanalyzing this, does suggest that that people that are over sixty, over seventy, over eighty, each one of those gradations there, um, you know, the the severity of the disease gets gets much much worse, right? And so we should we need to assume that same is going to be for people that are on you know long term steroid therapies or are um, you know long term antiviral therapies, they might have a tougher time with this virus as well. And so there are there are large cohorts within the U.S. population that are at increased risk of severe disease. And so that should be kind of the target of like, how do we take care of those people um, while, um, you know, still still allowing people that are not going to have a really tough time with this with this virus, hopefully, that might just have a, you know, a, a mild cold, mild flu, or maybe nothing at all. Let them get that exposure experience, let them start to build up the herd immunity, uh, and let them, you know, keep the, you know, keep the jobs, uh, jobs a humming there and, and, uh, and the economy running. So, um, you know, I think thinking about that in those terms, if you 
you know, if you have, um, you know, people that are uh, in that, you know, uh, in the elder years of life and uh, you need to make sure that they're going to be taken care of, you know, can they can they stay home? Can they stay away from from folks in terms of like, you know, shopping habits, um, going to the pharmacy? You know, what are the things that you can plan for right now without doing panic buying and panic shopping? Like, you know, we're not talking about hunkering down for a for a 24 hour storm here. This could be many months of trying to, like, increase the space between people and especially the space between more vulnerable populations and people than than those of us who are, you know, hopefully in, uh, in good shape to fight off this virus. And one of the things that we've seen, uh, officials have have referenced it, and clearly this is on the minds of, uh, of of investors as well. When we see drug companies that are talking about trialing their treatments and vaccines, how should we be thinking about the potential for a vaccine? How should we be uh, should should we be you know looking looking at every headline as a, as a step forward or is this really such a long process that uh, that we we need to you know put that aside and and assume that we have to deal with this in a you know <laughs> without a magic you know without yeah. a magic cure yeah, I think. I mean, I think absolutely. We need to move forward with the tools we have right now, and and those are, are like I was just talking about. It's kind of social distancing, and uh, how do we support people that need to really, um, you know, isolate themselves more than than others um, because of their vulnerabilities. But uh, you know, so that's what we can do today. What we should be continuing to do, though, is put pressure on uh, and encouragement, you know, with industries that can bring us, you know, some solutions. And so, um, you know, that includes therapeutics. You know, we need to we need to you know continue to look for, you know, is there something that can help uh, reduce negative outcomes for people that that do get uh, severe disease, um, and and long term, yeah, vaccines. So uh, that is that has always been a very uh, long and rather fraught process, and you know maybe uh, a silver lining here is that you know uh, we will find more efficient ways to uh, to vet and trial vaccines in the face of a of a, a global threat like this. So I would hope that we'll we'll learn something again about impediments to our own success here, and and find ways to try and move product a lot more quickly uh, out to the front lines and and let it do some good. That's still months yeah. if not years away so uh, remains to be seen obviously yes the uh, and and so speaking of the months and uh, months and years ahead we've read reports that this has the potential to be a recurring seasonal outbreak what what's in your mind the most likely future uh, trajectory of this virus well, so other, you know, th- it, let's say this gets endemic. Other, other endemic coronaviruses, you know, they they follow a seasonal pattern. This could fall into that. Um, that seems perfectly likely. Um, there's, you know, there is some some rapidly diminishing chance at this point still that we could find that we're able we're able to kind of encircle, um, you know, transmission pockets at some point in the future, with a robust diagnostic and public health response, and maybe meet that with you know a future um, vaccine or therapy, uh, and actually crush this out. There's a chance this thing could burn itself out, um, but uh, you know I think that the best sh- best chance we have of uh, getting through this is to survive the first wave. 
uh, and uh, you know protect the most vulnerable there. And then maybe at the end of that, we've got a, a usable vaccine, or maybe we've got an endemic virus that's um, you know going to have a much lower transmission rate because most of the world's already been infected. Well, thank you very much. Chris, Dr. Moores, you've uh, given us a lot of uh, useful insights here, and uh, thank you very much for your time. Uh, this is John Fagan signing off for the uh, special uh, coronavirus update edition of the HPS Macrocast. Join us on Friday for our regular edition, where we'll talk about uh, the market response to the ongoing outbreak and uh, look at the economic fallout in some parts of the world, including uh, in the U.S. Thank you for listening to the HPS Macrocast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share. Find more from Hamilton Place Strategies at hamiltonplacestrategies.com and follow Tony Fratto on Twitter, at Tony Fratto. Learn more about John Fagan, Brendan Walsh, and the work they do at Markets Policy Partners by visiting marketspolicy.com.